invite you to open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7. If you're here for the first time this summer, we're looking at the book of Revelation and teaching through the whole book of Revelation. And some of you are thinking, wait a minute, we're already about halfway through the summer and we're only in chapter 7. Well, strap on your seat belts for next week because we're going to cover about four chapters. Does that scare you? No, actually, last week I'd intended to go a little further this week than we're going to go because I, I started talking to people last week and I saw some people that were a little shell-shocked. We had such a high moment with Revelation chapter 5 and then you get to Revelation chapter 6 when all heaven breaks loose and you're kind of a little bit in awe and some people left saying, I'm afraid. Listen, as a believer, there's nothing to be afraid of. Okay, We're getting prepared. We're not getting scared. All right? How many of you remember in the old days, if you're under about 40, this may not apply to you, but movies used to have intermissions. Anybody remember that? Raise your hand if you remember intermissions. Who remembers one of the most famous movies that had an intermission? Who said Gone with the Wind? Gone with the Wind had an intermission. One reason it had an intermission is it was about a four-hour movie. I think the other reason they have intermissions is it's a great opportunity to sell concessions. You can go to shows today that have intermissions. Typically, movies don't, but shows do. And I, I think a lot of times it's, it's kind of give you a break in the middle of the show and um, also to sell snacks. Well, this is an intermission. Chapter 7, I'm calling it the interlude. In fact, the graphic that I found just kind of that looks like the old movie theater. Curtains would close, and you had a moment really to catch your breath. And that's what Chapter 7 is. Chapter 6 we looked at the six seals. Now, how many seals are there? There's seven. So we've only seen six, and we're about to see the seventh one open. And what happens when the seventh one is open is we start to see the first of the seven trumpets. And ultimately, we're going to see the seven woes, or, the, or excuse me, the seven bowls that are poured out. And so we take an intermission. And one of the things I really want you to get from this chapter is that in the midst of everything that is happening, God is in control. And God continues to show mercy. I think when you see this unleash of literally just just the wrath of God taking place, it's easy to look and, and, and say, too much is happening too fast. And it seems like things are out of control. And yet, what's really happening? God is in the process of fulfilling promise and He's in the process of reclaiming the earth from the enemy has had far too much freedom for far too long. Satan's days are numbered. And so we're going to see that in this book. In fact, the first section, just these first eight verses, really, I just call this the sovereign protection of God. Who's in control? God's in control. The earth's not in control. The enemy's not in control. God's in control. And what you're reading in the book of Revelation is the vision that God, that, that God is giving to John. To see what is coming. So verse 1. After this. Let me just stop right there. That occurs ten times in the book of Revelation. And it simply means we've. John has been seeing something. And that something he's seen has come to an end. And in this case has come to an interlude or an intermission. And he says alright. After that. And if we go all the way back to the first chapter of Revelation. If you remember. John was told to write down everything you see. Can you imagine being in John's shoes and what he's already seen? We're only up to through the sixth chapter. He's seen incredible things that so often he's had to say, it was like this. 
What does that mean? I think it simply means John saying, I've never seen anything like that before. I've had to describe it as something I have seen before. So it's not exactly this, but it's kind of like that. And so we've got a new vision coming, and you're going to see this again in this passage this morning. But after this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, so that no wind would blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their forehead. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Nephtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. From the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. You begin to see a pattern? There's 12 tribes, 12,000 sealed from each tribe. We'll get to that in a minute. But here's what he sees to start with. We're right in the middle of the six seals being opened. Calamity has been taking place on earth. And he says, I saw four angels standing at the corner of the earth. Now, does that mean that John thought the earth was flat? No. In fact, Old Testament tells us that the earth was looked at as a circle. You can read in Isaiah and Proverbs and other places. Long before scientists discovered the earth wasn't flat, God knew it because he created it, but even God spoke it into his word in the book, into the Old Testament books. And so it says he sees them, and I think he's simply saying at every compass point, to the north, to the south, to the east, and the west, I see these four strong angels holding back the winds. And it's a picture as though the winds were trying with all their might to break free. And what were they going to do? They were going to blow on the earth. They were going to blow on the sea, and they were going to blow on the trees. Calamity is coming. In fact, when we get to chapter 8, you're going to see some of what's going to happen when the angels stop holding back. Now, what happens when trees get uprooted by the wind? We had a couple of tornadoes come through the beach yesterday. Anybody near any of those tornadoes? I know the Socastee area had some. I've seen pictures of water spouts off the ocean. When trees are uprooted, they do a lot of damage. If you can imagine the winds blowing from every direction, the damage they would do by trees being blown over, even on the seas. And at first you might think, well, you know, the fish are really not going to be that harmed by wind on the sea. What about people that are sailing on the sea? What about ocean vessels that the wind starts blowing from every direction and boats are capsized? That's what's coming, and that's what you're going to see in the coming weeks. And yet, so the angel says, stop. Hold them back. And John saw this angel coming from the rising of the sun. What does that mean? It means he's coming out of the east. He looked to the direction that the sun would rise, and he sees another angel. Not one of the four he's already mentioned, but another angel. And the angel says, don't let go of the wind until what happens? Until the bondservants are sealed. Now, a lot of controversy over who in the world these bondservants are. If you read three commentaries, you're going to get four opinions on who these bondservants are. Okay, I'm simply going with what it says in the text. Here's what I believe they are. I believe that they are sons of Israel. 
They're Jews. They're from the nation of Israel. They've come to faith in Christ. Why do I believe that? Because they're called bondservants. Who else called himself a bondservant? Apostle Paul and some of the other writers in the New Testament called themselves doulos, bondservants. Who were they bondservants of? Of the Most High God. And so John hears the angel say, until the bondservants are sealed. Now, what's that going to look like? In fact, the, the angel that's coming has the seal of God. And, and they knew, you and I don't use seals a whole lot anymore, but if you had written a letter, you would kind of close it, or an important document, you would close it, and you'd put wax on it, and you'd have a signet ring that would seal it. And so if you received that envelope or that important document, you would know whether it had been opened or not, whether somebody had tampered with your mail. Well, we've seen the seals of this scroll in heaven that is being opened even as we speak in Revelation chapter 6 and then ultimately again in 8, the, the last seal is broken. So we see this signet ring coming and he says, I'm the one with the seal. Don't loose the winds until these bondservants are sealed. And what is their purpose? Well, I believe these are the ones that are going to be the evangelist in the time of the great tribulation. There are going to be people coming to know Christ, and we're going to see them introduced in the next part of the chapter. If you've got your Bibles and want to look at it, Revelation chapter 14, verse 1, I want you to see they are mentioned again. These 144,000 are mentioned again in Revelation 14, 1. I'll give you a moment to find that. John says, Then I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his name and the name of his Father written on their foreheads. So what is the seal that's going to be written there? It's going to be the name of Jesus and the name of God the Father are written on their forehead. And what does this seal do? It protects them. It preserves them. It basically says, these are mine. Nothing can touch them. How many of you have got a seal? Well, open up to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. Ephesians chapter 1. I have this one on the screen if you can't. If you don't have your Bible with you, you can follow along. Seals were important to God. You've been sealed if you're a child of God, if you're a believer. Here's how you were sealed, Ephesians 1.13. In him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. So if you're a child of God, you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. These 144,000, I think, represent the nation of Israel. I think John knows the number. They're mentioned again by number toward the end of the book of Revelation. And I believe these are the sons of Israel. It's not the church. Some people believe that, and I still love those people. You know what's going to happen if I get to heaven and it doesn't work out exactly the way that I picture it's going to work out? Nobody's going to care. All right? I don't think they're going to have a line. All right, this is the pre-trib line. This is the mid-trib line. This is the post-tribulation line. Of course, this one's going to form a little early. <laughs> what I said last week is let's pray for pre-trib, but prepare for post, all right? So these 144,000 are witnesses, bondservants. They have been... Sealed, And I'm not going to go through all 12 tribes here, but a couple things that are interesting. Number one, the tribe of Judah is listed first. The tribes are mentioned over 20 times in the Old Testament. Never is Judah mentioned first. Why do you think Judah is mentioned first? Well, Jesus 
is the lion from the tribe of Judah. I think they got bumped up in the order. There's also one that's not mentioned at all. And one is mentioned that's never mentioned, and that's the tribe of Levi. If you go back in the Old Testament, Levi didn't get a portion. Why? Because they were set apart as priests to God, and yet they're mentioned in this passage. And again, they're the preachers. Surely they ought to be part of the evangelists that go out telling people the good news of Jesus Christ. And so the point of those eight verses that we've walked through fairly quickly is we see the sovereignty of God setting apart, saying to this, hey, nothing's going to touch these until my purpose is accomplished. And the winds can't even blow. Calamity can't strike. We're putting an interlude. Stop it for a minute until these are sealed. Then verse 9. Verse 9. John says again, After these things I looked, and behold a great multitude which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and elders and four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. So what do we see in this second vision? We see worship taking place around the throne. Again, God, John says, after these things. So I've seen this vision of the angels holding back the wind. I've seen the one coming with the seal saying we're about to seal these 144,000. So that vision's completed. We've gone to another vision and John sees something in heaven. So the vision's gone from earth to heaven. And he sees what? A great multitude that no one could count. Now, John's given estimations before. You remember in an earlier chapter, he's talking about the angels. Not all the angels, just many of the angels. And he says they were myriads of myriads. Literally ten thousands of ten thousands and thousands of thousands. So you're talking about millions of angels. Well, now he gets to, he looks at a group and says, nobody can count this. Nobody can count the crowd. And we're going to get to who this crowd is in a minute. But I want you to see what they're doing. John sees this crowd in heaven around the throne standing before the throne and the Lamb. And he says they are from every nation, they're from every tribe, they're from every people group, and they're from every language group. Is anybody left out? No, all believers from all over the earth that have come to faith in Christ. No discrimination based on color or language nationality, none of that. They're all there. And that's what John has seen. And they are clothed in white robes. We've seen the white robe before. Jesus, when he appears to John in Revelation 1, is wearing this white robe. It's literally the word stole. It was a robe that went all the way to the floor, and it was an indication of purity. It was also an indication of honor. And so these have been given a robe and in their hands, they are holding palm branches. Palm branches. A sign of rejoicing on festive occasion. It's an emblem of triumph. Have we seen palm branches before in the Bible? Yeah, John. Gospel of John. 
What were palm branches used for? When Jesus Christ rides into Jerusalem before he's going to be crucified on the cross, on Palm Sunday, what happens? They're waving palm branches and singing, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest. They're celebrating, they're rejoicing, they're worshiping Jesus with palm branches. Will they do it again? These countless, the crowd's so big you can't count them, but they all got the palm branches in their hand and they're crying out with a loud voice. And what are they saying? Salvation to our God. Salvation belongs to our God. And what are they saying? He has saved us. He has rescued us. He has delivered us. And folks, when you're in the presence of God and you recognize apart from Him, I am lost. Apart from Him, I spend eternity separated from Him forever. And you're now in the presence of God, especially what these people have gone through. And you say, salvation to our God. What is the most natural thing that flows out of that? Is worship. And that's what they begin doing. This huge crowd is worshiping God and saying salvation to our God. The word most often used in the New Testament for worship, I'm going to teach you another Greek word this morning. And it's the word used here is the word pros kuneo. Pros means toward. Kuneo means to kiss. What they are doing is by worshiping, they are ascribing value to God. Literally, they are kissing towards God with their worship. And are they singing? No. It says they are saying. Now, I love singing worship, okay? I love that. But sometimes we get the idea that that's the only part of worship. That once the music ends, the preacher gets up, worship's over. <laughs> no, it's not. In fact, if, if you're in your car and you're just sensing oppression from the enemy, one of the best things you can do is start worshiping God. Satan's not going to hang around for that. And one of the ways you can worship is pop in a... CD or turn on your iTunes or something or just start singing. But other things you can do is start speaking truth about God. And here's how they worshiped. They said, first of all, they, they fell on their faces before God. I, and I think posture is important in worship. I just got to tell you, I, I don't think when we're worshiping God in heaven, we're going to be sitting back with some kind of ho-hum attitude. You're either going to be kneeling or you're going to be standing with your hands raised or probably more possibly you're going to be on your face before God. And they say, Amen. And at the end, they're going to say it again. Amen. What does the word Amen mean? It means trustworthy or true. It literally means let it be. And then they use the word blessing. It's where we get the word eulogy from. If you've ever been to a funeral where they said nice things about the person that's just been uh, just departed. That's a eulogy. That's what we do when we bless God. We say good things about God. Glory. It's where we get the word doxa or doxology from. It's where we, again, the word glory is hard to define, but it literally means the opinion resulting from a good reputation. Glory. Wisdom. Wisdom. God is all wise. There's no one like God. It's where we get the name Sophia. Wisdom. Thanksgiving, literally gratitude. What did these people have to be thankful for? We're going to find out a little bit later. These people were going through the great tribulation and they are now in the presence of God and they recognize He has saved them. Salvation belongs to our God. And so they're thankful for that. And honor, literally value or esteem. Folks, I think that's what worship is. Worship is when we ascribe to God the value that is due Him. 
And you're going to worship something. You're, you're attaching value to stuff every day. Well, there's nothing, no one, no thing that is more valuable than God. And when we worship God, we're saying, God, there is none like you. Another word is power and might. Literally, dynamite and forcefulness. Be to our God for how long? Forever and ever and ever. It never ends. Here's what I want you to do. We're going to take an interlude from the sermon for just a moment. We're not selling anything. I want you to take your bulletins if you've got something to write on. And I want you to think about what you would say to God if you were in His presence right now. It might be a word. We might let you buy with a phrase. But in this case, it was just some words that these people said. We're in the presence of Almighty God. And here's what we say. Amen. Blessing, glory, wisdom, thanksgiving, honor, might. We'll leave those words on the screen. They may tip you off, but it may be something you're thankful for. It may be another word that comes to your mind. Just write it down. And then I want some of you, as we stop for a moment, I want some of you to stand where you are and say in a loud voice, the word that God has brought to your mind or the word that you'd want to say to God because we are in His presence. Who would do that? Just right where you are, just stand up and say a word. Father, we worship you this morning. And Jesus, we worship you this morning because you are worthy. We're prompted right now by the Holy Spirit just to offer praise, thanksgiving, honor, value to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb because there is none like you. You're worthy. God, I pray that you create in us today worshipers that we don't wait for Sunday to worship you through music or even through the spoken word, but every day we're preparing for heaven. We're joining with those around the throne who would be worshiping you because you are worthy. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So now the question. Who are these people? The next part, the next passage is Simply the saints being comforted. And these were pretty important saints. Look at verses 13 and following. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, These who are clothed in the white robes, who are they? And where have they come from? And I said to him, My Lord, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. And they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. 
And he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. They will hunger no longer, nor thirst anymore, nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. For the lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd and will guide them to springs of the water of life. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Isn't that a great word? John is witnessing something like he's never seen before. He's thinking, I've got to write this down. This is beyond description. And it says, an elder answered. Well, John hadn't asked a question. But he looks at John and he says, who are these people? And I think what he's simply saying is, do you know who these are? Or wouldn't you like to know who they are? And John says, you know. I think in John's mind, he's thinking, I just got here. I don't know who these people are. And so this elder says, these are the ones that have come out of the great tribulation. And again, these are ones from every tribe and nation and people and tongue from all over the world. They have been experiencing the great tribulation. Are these the same as the 144,000? No. Why? Because we counted them. This is obviously myriads and myriads and millions beyond 144,000 that have come out of the great tribulation, that have come to faith in Christ. You think you've ever experienced revival? There's one coming during the tribulation where people will turn to Christ. What, what will other people do? It's amazing. We're going to get to this in upcoming chapters. They're going to look at everything that's going on. They're even going to know why it's going on, and they're still going to reject God. But obviously not everybody. This group doesn't reject God. In fact, they have come out of the great tribulation. The elder described them this way. Their robes have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. Think of the significance of that. What color is blood? Red. What color are their robes? White. How do you get white from red? It's because it's Jesus. And His blood that was shed for them on the cross has purified them. That's how that happened. And it says that God will protect them. He'll spread his tabernacle over them, literally his tent over them. And they will hunger no longer. What do we know is already happening when the seals are being broken? Famine. It's not enough for people to eat. In fact, people are working a whole day just for enough for one man to get enough wheat to get him to the next day. Families are starving to death. These people will never hunger again. The sea begins to be dried up. The waters are undrinkable during the Great Tribulation. What does it say? These people will never thirst again. The sun's not going to beat down on them, nor heat. And look how he ends. The lamb in the center will be their shepherd. We've seen that term before. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. What a picture of comfort. We're called sheep a lot in Scripture. What do we know about sheep? Sheep are not the smartest animals. You don't go to the circus and see trained sheep. They're not the cleanest of animals. They can't clean themselves. And they're defenseless. So they're not real smart. They're not clean. And they're defenseless. Any more questions on why we're called sheep? But what do we have? We got a shepherd. What does a shepherd do for his sheep? Everything. 
He takes them to find food. He takes them to find water. And he protects them from their enemies. These people that have come out of tribulation have been brutalized during the tribulation. They need a shepherd. And he's been their shepherd the day they came to Christ. But in heaven, he'll be their shepherd for eternity. He'll guide them to springs of water of life. The word for spring literally means water that is gushing. That's what living water is. It's not water that's stale or stagnant. It's water that has an endless supply and it's gushing. Sound familiar? John chapter 4, when Jesus meets the woman at the well, what does he say to her? If you had known who you were speaking to, you would have asked for me and I would have given you living water and you would thirst no more. That's the promise we have from our Savior. And then lastly, God will wipe away every tear. You think these people had shed tears on earth? Oh yeah. There won't be tears in heaven. In fact, Isaiah chapter 25 verse 8, just jot this down. Isaiah 25 8. God will swallow up death for all time and the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces and he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. That's a prophecy from the Old Testament that comes true in the New Testament. And folks, if you don't get anything else from this message, get this. God's speaking. And what's happening during the tribulation is God redeeming the earth. Protecting his people. Being sovereign over the earth that he created. And one day everything will melt with intense heat. Because he's got a new earth and a new heaven. We'll get to that later let's pray together father i confess that we're still amateurs when it comes to worship god help us god not to wait for heaven but god we need to be worshiping you on earth because your word tells us in john 4 that you seek worshipers and that you inhabit the praise of your people that you're enthroned upon the praise of your people god worship you not because it's simply a command but God you are worthy and God we like those that came out of tribulation would say salvation is from you you have delivered us you have protected us and so because of that we ascribe to you worth and value Lord we love you but we recognize even saying that it's because you first loved us God, if there's not, if there's someone here this morning that does not know you, God, perhaps you've stirred a heart this morning. I pray they would not leave this place until they've talked to somebody that could tell them how they could come to know Jesus. God, for those of us that know you, God, challenge us to grow in our understanding of who you are and just how great you are. I pray this in Christ's name. We're going to stand in.